This is a journey. You on point, Mike? All the time, Jay. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to Journey Into Sound. I'm JC. I am Mike Joseph. And uh, yeah, we talk about music and culture and the intersection of the twine. <laughs> yes, indeed. That is what we do. I'm glad that we have a little little tagline there. Yeah. So welcome. This is episode four. four. Yes. Yeah. And for those who don't know, we do record these in advance. There have been some very high profile deaths over the past few months, and we haven't addressed them because by the time this gets to air, five it, other it people feels... pass away. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like maybe we should do a, a, a end of year Stim Power kind of episode or something might just need to, to do get that, them all, all at once. Even just acknowledging now. Obviously, True Gore the Dove uh, from De La Soul passed away yes. recently. There was Lisa Marie Presley. There was yes. Anita Pointer of the Pointer Sisters. Uh, mm -hmm. There was Jeremiah Green, the drummer of Modest Mouse. There was right. Raquel Welch yesterday. With the guitarist. Beck. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's just been like it's an unfortunate onslaught the last couple of months. Yeah. So 2016 almost. Well, I mean, part of it is also just... We're getting to that age where yeah. people who were in the late 70s, early 80s are getting up there. And unfortunately for a lot of the hip hop generation, people from the mid 80s, early 90s are, yeah. are taking hits. So well, just want I mean, to acknowledge all of that. As, as two black men, we are very much aware that the lifespan of black men is dramatically shorter, generally speaking, than it is for other genders and races um, for a variety of reasons. So the unfortunate thing is that, wow, and I mentioned this on my radio show over the weekend, we got Paul McCartney and Eric Clapton and, and those folks. But when you look at like black men, the music really got Al Green and Smokey and Stevie. And yeah. That's it at this point. Yeah. Most black male musicians don't really live to see old age. That's true. And someone was talking recently about Madonna, who had a recent little bit of controversy during the Grammys. But aside from that, acknowledging the fact that she is the only one left, like there is no Michael Jackson, there is no Prince. We didn't get to see what a Michael Jackson in old age would have become, what his persona would have been. Not that I mean, he was eccentric enough. Yeah. <laughs> right. But yeah, it's, as a child of the 80s, the late 80s anyway, to sit here in 2023 and be like, Michael Prince, Whitney, George Michael are all gone. Yeah. Uh, Madonna is truly the last person standing in terms of the iconic musicians of that era. Iconic pop stars of that era, I should say. Indeed. Well, if if you might have We started off couple... pressing his shit, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, feel, fun, I, I feel like for a music podcast and with all of this affecting the music world, it, yes. we have to at least acknowledge it at some we point. We should acknowledge it. Even if it's not necessarily timely, that's sort of an evergreen acknowledgement because who knows what will happen between now and April when this air, yeah. airs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you probably picked up, we have a guest today, our first guest. Yay! Hello! <laughs> 
Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is Tamara and I am a television producer. I work on reality TV, your favorite guilty pleasures. So Housewives <laughs> shows, Tiny House Nation, Queer Eye, I've worked on big, some big shows and ooh. Yeah, excuse the background excuse noise today. We're on location. <laughs> that was the truck. <laughs> we picked the noisiest corner of this apartment. And uh, yeah, I love music in all forms. I have a very eclectic taste and started out like essentially my first job at 16. All the money went to concerts. <laughs> so I was making like 100 bucks a week and probably spending 110 on concerts. So yeah, I'm, hey, I wanted to bring you in because I know you like that and you're easy to book but <laughs> but also because you wow. are a live music aficionado and your concert buddies so to speak we've been to many and have plans to go to several shows in the future already so why don't we start here what is the band you've seen the most and what is the first show you remember going to okay I got them both Yes. I got them both ready to go. <laughs> so I've seen Florence and the Machine four, maybe five times, and I'm about to see them two more times in June. If you haven't been, it is it is a religious experience if you're a music <laughs> person. She just captivates a crowd like no one I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot of people. And then my first show was No Doubt, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. We nice. were just listening to some. <laughs> and yeah, so there it was the Tragic Kingdom tour, obviously. I was just going to ask, was of this course, Scott or No, no I'm not Doubt? That cool. or... <laughs> Well, I think that's the other thing. I'm not cool. So like I find out about bands just at the end of their like peak and I'll be like, oh, I like them. And then I'll go back. <laughs> I'll be like, oh, I like all their stuff. Interesting. There's not Yeah, no, I don't try to be cool. I'm not cutting edge at all. How, how about you, Mike? There was just a meme floating around about this, actually. The act that I've seen the most voluntarily, because because of my job, I... Right, I'm, right. Fair enough. To to shows. <laughs> the band that I've seen the most voluntarily is probably Dave Matthews' band. I've seen them 14 times. Oh, wow. Um, what is the my, word for, for like, the, deadheads? What is your... <laughs> there, there isn't. There's, like, deadheads, and then there's, like, fish fans, PH, with you know, fans with the PH. Right, like, right. Like, people, but Dave Matthews' band, don't, their fans don't have a name. But that I, feels I, like I a missed them. opportunity. <laughs> it is a missed opportunity. I'm not sure what you would call them. I've seen them 14 times. Probably seen them a few times. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot yeah. of fun, and their, their musicianship is off the charts. Like, yeah, so, that's for sure. My first show was actually Michelle and Degiocello. Uh, All right. Irving Plaza in 1994. So I was 17. Um, wow. Or no, maybe I was 18. I don't remember. But it was the last show of the Plantation Lullabies tour. And uh, I remember that she, her opening act was like a spoken word performer or a group of spoken word performers um, who were very, very pro-black. And a bunch of the white people in the audience left before she went. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I remember she was in a shitty mood the whole show. And like at the end of it, she was just like, I don't even want to do this anymore. And she just unstrapped her base and let it fall. Like it, it dropped it and walked off. Wow. Um, and this didn't turn you I've off of live music forever. <laughs> no, no. I was just like, oh my God, what is going on here? I have seen her twice since. And uh, she has been fantastic every single time I've seen her. I'm sad that I missed her earlier this month with uh, Yeah, she was um, just at the Blue Note. Yeah. Again, we record this in advance, but. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. What about you, Jermaine? What was your initial, or who have you seen the most? So, it used to easily be Sonic Youth, but it may 
at this point be Radiohead, if not Radiohead, Tom York in various iterations. Yeah. Sonic Youth was one of those bands that I just, every time they were coming through, I would catch them maybe in my city and the adjoining city for a few years before they broke up. Very sad. I've never seen Sonic Youth. I have stood next to Thurston Moore once. <laughs> nice. Some bar in New Jersey, but I uh, have never actually seen them before. I mean, they're, they're just interesting people in general and yeah. the whole way that that went down. Have you read Kim Moore's book? I know enough about it without having read yeah. it to have an idea of what went down. Yeah, interesting. Essentially, they got divorced. There was some infidelity involved. And she wrote the book when it was still fresh. And it was one of those things where you could tell she was trying to be impartial and not too bitter, but it it seeped through a little bit, especially in the way where it's like, I'm not going to say any names, but I'm going to give you enough information that you could figure it out if you really wanted to. <laughs> um, right. So yeah. And my very first concert, <laughs> canonically, it is and the Chipmunks. <laughs> But (laughs) my first concert as an adult, my first proper concert that I actually remember because you go to college and you see shitty bands in bars all the time. Your friend's band doesn't count. Well, I mean, some of these people had albums and just couldn't put together a proper tour. So they played your college towns they could. But uh, I think Warp Tour was the first like, ooh, I'm paying tickets and I'm going to a show uh, kind of thing. What lineup? 2001 i forget who headlined that year but you know that religion always plays i think good charlotte was still a thing that year <laughs> that's not who i went to see but obviously they were there yeah i forget who else was on the bill that year i remember seeing thursday for the first time which is interesting because tamara and i actually have ticks to see thrice and they're kind of one of my white whale bands and thursday and thrice used to tour together all the fucking all time. The time so i'm now 20, 20 years later, finally getting to see Thrice, even though I've seen Thursday already. <laughs> Better late than never. Indeed. So yeah, the other reason I invited Tamara here, not just because she's a good person to talk about live music in general, but she was at a, a historical event that is worth talking about. And we have actually mentioned on this podcast previously. Tamara, do you want to tell us? Woodstock 99. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the, I know. Uh, the, the source of a whole last documentary. Several. A whole couple documentaries. Several. Yeah. <laughs> I just watched two of them because I was like, I don't remember much of it. But yeah, it was interesting to watch those documentaries now. And do you, because there's like the narrative 20 years later, and did watching these, these retellings fit your experience or? kind of know the answer because we've talked right. about this. But. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. So I watched the Netflix one first just because I probably already had Netflix on. And I felt like the Netflix doc was more a timeline. It was like, here's this thing. Here's what happened. Here's what was going on as things happened. But it didn't really give any contextual information about it. Like, it's really easy to forget that in the 90s, there were no large scale protest movements among white people. There just weren't. That culture didn't really exist. And the economy was booming. So like all these things that like really were specific to the time, you had all these kids with no purpose and and a lot of money <laughs> and unemployment was low. So there was all this there. So when I watched the HBO documentary, 
which was a music box documentary, which music box is obviously very iconic. And I think that that gave a lot more contextual information to what led to all those things. So they talk about DMX going up there and just doing DMX songs, but to a crowd of a quarter million, mostly white people dropping N-bombs and call and response like nobody's business. And you're just like, whoa, we were just not talking about this then. Yep. Yeah. So I think as Jermaine said, like much like with the Firefest documentaries, we're watching two kind of gives you two different things, two different takes on it. The Netflix one for me felt a little superfluous because I was there. But I realized later, if you weren't there, perhaps that's a great way to understand the timeline. So Tamara, what was the impetus for you to buy tickets? What what made you be like, I got to go check this out? Well, so I grew up in New Jersey, right? So again, I had spent all my money, all of the last couple of years of high school going to concerts because they were so accessible. I had a very, a very cooperative mom who would drive me into the city and go see shows. So it was just the thing I was already doing. And so that lineup was insane. If you were any kind of music lover, I must have already been going to like the Lilith Fair shows. So the idea mm-hmm. of going to like a show that was like multi-performer, multi-genre. Missy Elliott was at one of the later Lilith Fair shows. Mm-hmm. So you know, the idea that you could have this sort of multi-genre lineup was so intriguing to me. And I loved a lot of the artists and I have a very eclectic taste. So who did you actually go to see? I went to see a lot of people. Jewel was there. Alanis was there. But Rage Against the Machine was also there. Um, mm-hmm. And Red Hot Chili Peppers were there. And so like had all these kind of things. And it's very interesting to me because I was definitely who they thought they were going to get. <laughs> and I was not who they got. Right? Like they got Corn fans. They got Godsmack fans. Megadeth fans. Got people who were there for these heavy, heavy bands. Creed was there. I wouldn't say I'm a fan of theirs now, but at the time, they were, were that big. was the top hey, of their thing. No cat fan. Right. <laughs> and so, like, again, in one of these documentaries in the HBO, when they did a great job of talking about the nostalgia factor. So Creed brought up someone who had played with the Doors. And they were in the documentary. They're like, no one got it. No one understood it. And I'm sitting here watching it going, I loved that. I remember that. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, they got someone from the Doors. How cool. Yeah. But in retrospect... Nobody else got it. It was definitely a me thing. Right. So, so uh, we mentioned Creed and Tamara and I have recently <laughs> been talking about this weird period of time where like Christian rock became mainstream, yeah, dog. but it wasn't explicitly Christian rock. And that's a whole other episode for us to go, <laughs> to go into, but it's like, yeah. is this song about like Jesus or pussy or like, is this song? <laughs> like. <laughs> It was all there's a lot going on, not to sidebar, but even the boy bands and uh, like Britney in the beginning, Beyonce, even they were all like vaguely Christian, like they definitely right. played the whole like holding on to my B card and we're wearing these WWJD bracelets and like all that stuff. Like it, it was a very interesting overtone of, of Christian fervency in mainstream pop music during that time, yeah. So Tell us about your experience specifically. So again, I think I was I was who they thought they were going to get, right? So I went to see a bajillion bands, but I remember a lot of talk about the water situation, and that is no joke. There were huge distances you were walking. It was an old Air Force base, so it's very big, a lot of runways, right? So not 
designed to be walkable places. And the water was $4 a bottle. Yeah. Which if you can find me water for $4 a bottle now, now I'm going to say it's overpriced. Right. I'm going to say that's crazy. And this was 20 years ago, right? So they had water. It was free water. But essentially all the systems broke down very early on in the thing. So I remember by Saturday we were already like, oh, my God, we got to do this another night because it was hot. It was disgusting. But there were so many bands you weren't going to go anywhere. <laughs> right. And were there multiple stages? What was the setup? The two stages were like literally a mile away. And so I was 17, but my birthday's in the summer. I graduated from high school early, but I was about to go to college. So like, I think my parents were just like, okay, you can go to this thing. But I had two friends with me who were dudes who definitely I kind of clung to because I, you could tell the energy was weird. It, it was also no one had cell phones. So if you lost someone, you lost them. Like right. if you couldn't yeah. find your tent, you were going to sleep on the ground. There weren't a ton of options at the time and there was no assistance for anyone. So I think I wound up staying at the East stage. I actually went and looked and saw what, what the lineups were and I'm a hundred percent that I stayed at the East stage because that was really where all, all like my kind of bands were. So I, uh, let me see. So Friday, Friday, I think I didn't get there in time for James Brown because there was a ton of traffic getting in there, but I would have been there for Cheryl Crow, DMX, The Offspring. I, I probably left for corn and then came back for Bush. Yeah, I know. Speaking of shameful, shameful. <laughs> we don't like Bush now. <laughs> I mean, look, I like Gavin Rossdale. I liked Bush, but like the idea of like where they fit into the music history is a bit of a, where do they fit in? Well, so they were one of the unfortunate victims. Of, they had an album drop on 9-11. Oh. Did they? I, yeah. See, I and their single Speed Kills got oh. yanked from radio airplay. Yeah. And that's pretty much the last most people heard of bush uh, they had a song on i think the john wick soundtrack or something recently so I'm still around and gavin's been doing his solo thing but you know, that hurt their career yeah i mean in my defense i was 16 and gavin ross tells very attractive man i like so. bush. <laughs> i still, still like is bush. i i ran into him maybe in the east village and i was like damn you pretty he real pretty. He real pretty. Yeah. I feel like everyone has run into him at some point because he's just like a dude that like lives his life. He ended up at my friend Dale's house in LA. I'm like you. He, they were having some party. He came downstairs and some dude was messing with his acoustic guitar. He's like, hey, I'm Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you are Gavin. So yeah, so I was Friday. So I, I would have been at the East Stage. Yeah, there's in retrospect, there was one band that I was like, oh shit, I did not know they were there. Like you discovered somebody there? Well, Moby was at the emerging artist stage. So 99. Was Play out at that point? I think Play came out in 2000. Yeah. Okay. So Saturday, I would have been at Dave Matthews. This is again at the East stage. Alanis. And then Limp Bizkit, Rage Against the Machine, and Metallica. So if you want to talk about taking a turn, like right. <laughs> that day just went. They I mean. Well just subtitle that White Male Rage. No, for real. So, wait, was Ozfest a thing at this point? So, Coachella wasn't around. Little Fair None was. None of these things were. Lollapalooza was around. Yeah, yeah, None of them were. Lollapalooza was around because it was Lollapalooza and Little Fair were both like mid to late 90s. Right. Um, 
but Coachella and like festivals that we know now were not around. I think Ozfest and Warp Tour were both early two thousand. They were post Woodstock '99. They were twenty first century creations. Gotcha. I mean, Lilith Fair was also a concert. Went to see it at Jones Beach. So it was, you had seats for the evening. That was it. Might have been like an emerging artist stage as well, but it wasn't like kind of like a run back and forth uh, situation. So yeah, I mean, I definitely was at the East stage all day on day as well. Well, I know you, we've both seen Rage Against the Machine within the last year, but were you like a Metallica, Limp Bizkit? Was that your flavor? I mean, everyone was into Limp Bizkit then. (laughs) <laughs> truly i mean nookie had just come out like that was their moment like i'm not saying they have a i mean they do kind of have a lasting legacy but like if there was a time to be into limp biscuit and not be ashamed <laughs> of it that was the moment that's true and it's funny because they get a ton of shit for fred durst being a douchebag in all these documentaries and fred durst is a douchebag i'm not trying to take that away <laughs> But Rage Against the Machine lit an American flag on fire on the stage. Again, I have no problem with lighting American flags on fire. But if you want to talk about the energy in that place and like who was in, I mean, Fred crowd surfed. That's all he did. I mean, right. you know, he's an asshole and he's giving the best sound bites. But, you know, these, these were acts that were designed to incite an audience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it, I, there was probably, it was a combination probably of the aggression of, of all those bands. Plus, obviously, it being hot and people being uncomfortable and the water situation, kind of all that. Like, it was just a lot of a lot of bad ingredients mixing up for perfect storm of, of anger. Right, but Metallica had been touring for 20 years at that point right. without real incident. There's, like, the fire situation at Red Rocks. But, but it's also Metallica after Limp Biscuit and Rage Against the Machine. Right. Well, and also there's one other thing I want to mention. In the 90s, specifically at my upper middle class white high school, everyone was doing Ecstasy at the time, which is called Molly now. And so raves were a huge thing. And they had an overnight rave every single night. So people, oh yeah. I'm- so... <laughs> <laughs> so people were going from these crazy shows and then going to raves doing molly because no one was searching bags that thoroughly and then essentially waking up and doing it all again so the idea that like you weren't whipping people into a frenzy with all of this is a little blind like you're definitely not paying attention to how it's going like i had forgotten about the rave tents i had forgotten that they were all night like they're talking about in the documentary, apparently someone drove a car into the rave tent. Oh, shit. Yeah. I mean, crazy shit was going on. So you can blame the music, but it's definitely the programming of this event. Well, yeah, I mean, watching the documentaries, clearly the organizers and promoters were out of touch, to say the least. And even when shit started going left, like, there was no mitigation. There was, like, well we can't do anything about it, so whatever. And there's a couple of moments where they show them going on stage to address the crowd, and it's just like... Super out of touch. Not effective at all. Like I can't imagine it being so. <laughs> Especially since you still can't get water. So they're like, calm down as you're dehydrated. It was 100 degrees. It's not like it was a pleasant atmosphere to start with, and then you can't get water. And I think one more thing that about the organizing of the event that I think is worth noting is my little ephemera that I happened to discover (laughs) while cleaning something out recently, which is at the time you could buy these passes. So you would not have to drive. You could show up at a spot 
get on a bus and the bus would transport you. And so that's how me and my friends got there. Well, the buses didn't leave till Monday. So you were there from Saturday, you were dropped off, and then you had to find your bus on Monday. So this idea that people just had all this free will to to leave, I mean, there's a lot of buses. There's a lot of location pickups. And it's also worth noting that like, I'm looking at some of these pickups and they're 5 a.m. on the Friday. We'll scan this and put it in the show notes for So 4 a.m. from Columbus, Ohio is when people are supposed to be getting on these buses. So like people are showing up whacked out. Yeah. And there's got to be 50 buses on here. And I don't think it was just one bus at each spot. I think it was multiple buses. And they sold these as part of the passes. And you weren't going to leave until your bus left. You could not. Rome, New York, this place was the middle of nowhere. Right. You're not no running up the street to grab supplies. Like Coachella, like I've camped out at Coachella before and been like, oh, yeah, we need to pick up more water or whatever the fuck it is. And you drive 30 minutes to the nearest quick stop or whatever and you can come back to camp no big deal it's not sounding like that was the situation here it was I mean, an army base in the middle of nowhere I mean, there were walls around us we couldn't go anywhere do you remember the fires and like, how did you react or i went to bed so you didn't <laughs> see them at all i did i did see them because i was at red hot chili peppers okay but the fires with the other stage the fires were not at the red hot chili peppers stage i don't think although the documentary said it was the east stage but i don't remember it that way well they in the documentary they show Anthony Kiedis pointing to the fires and then they play the Jimi Hendrix cover. Yeah, so. but I think the fires were at the Godsmack stage, but I could be wrong. I mean, everything was so far away, so I assume they were there, but I have this one visual. I just remember being like, I'm going to go to bed and maybe I'll wake up in the morning because it was getting crazy. But after Red Hot Chili Peppers, I went to bed and I remember- but you felt safe at that point. Oh, absolutely not. Oh. <laughs> I just didn't have a choice. <laughs> you just went to bed anyway. Well, what was I going to do? Oh, well, fuck it. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of options. Again, I had to wait for this bus the next day. What was I going to do? I mean, when I tell you there was no one there to help you, I really went into my tent being like, this is probably the safest place I'm going to be. So they were far enough away. Though. Yeah, okay. yeah. And I was not to victim blame because a lot of terrible things happened. But I didn't get the sense that people were out looking to fuck with people. So I felt very much like if I stayed my nerdy self and I just walked back to my tent, closed the zipper, no one was going to come in looking for me. Like there was an atmosphere that was trouble and there was elements of the crowd that were dangerous. But was anyone like looking to fuck with people? I don't really think so. So like, unfortunately, if you were like flirting with that, even a little bit. You went to the rave. If you were drinking the $10 beers, I was a nerd. I was there for the music. So I I actually was able to kind of keep myself out of that pretty strongly. Did I have any wild times that weekend? No, I had no wild times that weekend. And did you were with your two friends the whole time? Yeah. Or did you guys split up and go to different stages? We split at up point? at one point. I think my friend Chris walked away. My friend James definitely went and partied at the rave, but he and I were really good friends. Like he was my prom date. We were totally chill. So he was definitely looking out for me in the pit. Like I remember, I think in Limp Biscuit when the mosh pit got really crazy, he wound up getting cut in the face with his glasses, but I always felt like like he was taking care of me. So wait, you- I was in the pit the whole time. <laughs> well, that was where he wanted to be. I wasn't leaving the stage, right? So I went early for Alanis when you could just sort of like amble up. 
And then I just didn't leave. So, yeah. and again, if you look at these groups, it doesn't get crazy till it gets crazy. Right. Yes. That's the thing. I think it's important to remember this thing was 72 hours. And there were a lot of crazy hours, but there were a lot of not crazy hours. It was very misprogrammed. And clearly these people didn't know who they were bringing to this festival. And there's there's tours that feature these kinds of bands that don't have this kind of trouble. Right. All the time. To so, the Metallica point, right. Yeah. So I really blame it on the water. <laughs> I cannot tell you how bad it was. <laughs> well, physiology, yeah. You got people hot. You got people dehydrated, tired. Yeah, and then you're whipping them into a frenzy. But yeah, it's sort of a recipe for disaster. It just feels like a, it was all kind of like worst possible case scenario at the worst possible time between the heat and the energy of the music and the inaccessibility and the dysregulation, all that stuff. It was just every bad thing happening at once. I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question tastefully. You have to be tasteful, Jermaine. I was going to say, why start now? <laughs> Thanks. Was the nudity as ubiquitous as it was portrayed by the cameras? No. Like, there were a lot of titties. I'm not going to say there weren't. <laughs> Probably more than I've ever seen in my whole life. But the idea that, like, this was some sort of bacchanalia, like, at the shows, it just wasn't. Like, girls were up on shoulders. They would flash. They would take it down. Some girls were naked. But, like, I guess it also did get old, right? So you're like, oh, people have their shirts off. And then people have their shirts off, and then you don't really notice it anymore. <laughs> but I was Right. And I don't remember it being that. Also, you got to burn your nipples off. It was so hot. What are you doing? There was nowhere to hide. Is that how that works? <laughs> yeah. No, they don't often see sunlight. And if you look at the the videos, those were not nipples that had been exposed to sunlight before. And they were going to burn. <laughs> you couldn't do it that long. So there was also a lot of like body paint stuff happening. Right. So, yeah. It's yeah, it, fair. Like, there was nudity at Woodstock in 1969. Yeah. Like, it, 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 I don't necessarily know that that's a determining factor. But again, I think when you combine, again, the energy of the bands and the heat and blah, 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 then stuff that is generally innocuous just becomes a potential shit start. Well, well, and also the time, right? Like, 70s free love is different from 90s girls gone wild. That the real thing, I think in the late 90s, there was a lot of pressure to be sexually liberated. There was a lot of pressure to expect that like you were just like confident and you could do it. And like it was pre-girl boss, but it was post Whitney and all of that. Like there was this like sense of like you had to own your own sexuality. And for a lot of people, I think that pushed them into acting sexually when they wouldn't have necessarily otherwise. Like Girls Gone Wild is what this was because... It was people who were hopped up on any number of things, also not making the best decisions. There was a mob mentality in a lot of cases. And I think that's when I talk about like, oh, I didn't really get into any of that. I think I didn't join any of the mob mentality, right? I like, was with my two friends. I trusted them intensely. And that was who I was there with. I wasn't trying to meet anyone. I wasn't there to do that. Because I was a nerd and I was there for the music. And a lot of people, they were there for all of that. So that's why I'm saying I'm not trying to shame or blame anyone for that. But I think if, if you could extricate yourself from that sort of mob energy, 
he kind of missed a lot of the bad stuff. He was still dehydrated as shit. My, so my mom picked us up from the bus station upon our return. She's like, y'all smelled so bad. <laughs> She's like, I have never smelled something like that. Because, I mean, I don't even remember using a porta potty more than like three times. Because I was so dehydrated. And your sweat don't smell good at that point. Mm, yeah. So we were nasty. So how did yeah, your mom not being there herself, knowing you went and seeing the news, how did she? My talk- mom's pretty chill. She trusted <laughs> me. I mean, again, I think I might have called. I don't think I could have, though, because it was crazy. Like, the lines were mental. Did I have a cell phone yet? I might have had a cell phone. Because I was going to college in like two weeks. And so I might have had a cell phone and been able to call back a couple times. But yeah, I think she just trusted me. And and friend Chris, we had gone to high school together. I knew him very well. My friend James was a little bit older and um, definitely was like caretaker-y with me. So like she felt like I was in pretty good hands with them. And I've just always been pretty sensible. Again, it wasn't my first rock show, right? So she'd been seeing me go to these shows and... I kind of knew how to handle myself. I think that's the other thing worth mentioning. I lived in New York, right? So I was going to all these shows all the time. Not everyone was. That's true. Right. I'm I'm certain that there were people there from like Wisconsin who had never been to a show outside of their local jurisdiction before and were just like, oh my God, I'm away from my parents. I'm going to go buck wild. Yeah. Yeah. That's another factor in that recipe. 100%. And then college kids- who were away from now, so they had that energy. Yeah, it was a fucking disaster. <laughs> I don't know why anyone <laughs> thought it was a good idea, to be honest. So I mean, we probably won't be seeing that again. We've had other festivals pop up that are much better managed, I mean, organized, I think that was a, better. A teachable moment that people definitely don't want to replicate. I mean, I'm not a festival dude. I like asking me to camp out with thousands and thousands of other people. I'm not <laughs> trying to do that. The one more more than one night festival that I can recall being being at was ACL Fest and. Okay. Every night after the last band, I got in a fucking cab and went back to my buddy's place and took a shower and hung out and whatever. So it wasn't, yeah. and even still, people there, I mean, it was super hot. People there who didn't necessarily know how to hydrate or were on stuff, I, I saw people pass out. But yeah. there was also security all over the place. There was none. There was none. Yeah. I, I've been to Coachella and I did camp out. Although, like I said, it's close enough to cities where you could get a hotel or Airbnb nearby. And up in Los Angeles, they have a lot of these like one day independent festival with multiple stages. Not like an overnight camp thing, but you just kind of go downtown for the day and hang out. And then invited to Bumbershoot and South by Southwest. I haven't been yet myself, but people tend to know how to navigate these things nowadays without it turning into craziness. Um, that's a good pivot though, just to figure it would be worth having a discussion around the state of the touring industry in general right now and like new phenomena of the nostalgia festival. There's the, when we were young thing that they've been doing now, and there's another one they announced like there are economics behind this happening. (laughs) So let's get into that. And we can also talk about Santa gold had her, her, uh, when she announced that she was canceling her tour and just kind of date of what's the economics and what's available post pandemic. 
mm. where a lot of people have been sitting at home for a while. Because, I mean, there are tiers to this. There, there's layers, as they say, levels, if you will. But there's a lot of artists who make their money from touring. Like they'll release an album and this album is just a means to promote the tour. And obviously there's the, the reverse of that. But what are to your be, thoughts, Mike? <laughs> it used to be the reverse of that pretty often. I mean, before streaming, um, the artist would tour to support the album. And right. now, because artists don't make any money from streaming, uh, the album kind of supports the tour. Um, and I, I don't know, I haven't gone to very many concerts in the last three and a half years for obvious reasons. Um, right. and I'm not necessarily sure that I really want to do that again. Like I'm kind of inching towards it. Um, but I, there are so many different things to talk about when it comes to bands and artists going on tour in 2023, whether it's ticket prices, which in some cases are just like way out of control, Live Nation slash Ticketmaster and the fees that they charge you to purchase a ticket, which have always been like crazy and now are just yes. like, you know, obviously now there's federal oversight uh, investigation, all that kind of stuff happening. Uh, though there is a nostalgia factor where we're seeing like, it's not even just like indie tours anymore. It's like 2000s package right. tours. Um, yeah. In addition to like 70s, 80s, 90s tours. And I don't know why the first thing that popped into my head was a mixtape tour, which is the New Kids on the Block tour, which they've been bringing like <laughs> yeah. four or five contemporaneous acts on tour with them every year and selling out arenas and stadiums with these tours. So I, I think it makes sense. I think the days of someone going to see one specific person are kind of fallen by the wayside at this point because it really is except a for financial beyonce or taylor swift or... right. i mean right. florence or lizzo but, i mean know. there's a lot of people who can still command it still can but madonna's touring right. so that is nostalgia right. yeah that is full nostalgia <laughs> but it's just one person that's true i stand corrected there really weird i mean i i haven't yet bought tickets to a show this spring or summer Debating going to see Little Brother. Oh, nice. De yeah, debating I want to see Babyface and Anita Baker. Mm -hmm. And then there's Package Tour, New Edition Guy and Keith Sweat in Tank. That is like right. R&B auntie tour. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess they were okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, these are also, and some of these ticket prices are ridiculous. Like I, in my life, I have not paid more than $150 for a concert ticket. Have I? Oh, I definitely have. I mean, I guess I've paid that much for a festival. For a festival, I, yes. Yeah. But I don't know. How much were the Rage tickets? Rage was 200 You definitely paid more. But okay. actually, I had seats that were not as expensive as I expected. I think I might have actually only paid 150 for Rage. I think I got mine at a pretty good deal, too. Yeah, there were those charity tickets. But then so the charity was like double price, but you were donating. Right. And I got right. the non-charity ticket. Well, well, okay. So this is actually a really good segue because I... You bought your tickets when they initially announced that show. I sure did. The show didn't happen until two and a half years later. It sure did. I bought my tickets when people were like, well, shit, I bought these tickets three years ago and I can't go. So I was able to get a pretty good deal on mine. But yeah, that's impacted. So right now, people are trying to book tours and the venues are still trying to do makeup dates from three years ago. So the dates available for people to book tours are very limited. Hence, yep. Santa Gold's point when she uh, posted about canceling her, her tour. And so the venues are like booked solid. 
or charging exorbitant rates to book your tour there. At which point, <laughs> as an artist, you have to be like, is my Q score high enough? <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I think that's what's happening. I am a person who buys tickets right away because I have FOMO if I miss a show. And so I try really hard to get those tickets and I'll buy two and then figure out the person going with me later. I don't really care. I will float that stuff. But I was actually really frustrated because Madonna is doing this tour. She hasn't toured in a while. She certainly hasn't toured with anything anyone wants to see in a while. And now she's doing this greatest hits tour and people are psyched. I was going to say, is there an album that's going? No. Okay. She's promising to do what we all want her to do. Right. Essentially, which is like your point, Mike, this nostalgia thing. And so she, she released two tour dates in New York. And I don't know if it's like this everywhere else, but definitely happening in New York. Two tour dates. It sells out. They add more dates. So here you are. You've been sort of bamboozled into buying whatever tickets were available because they were selling out. It's the, the scarcity thing. And so then they're like, oh, we sold it out twice. Let's do it again. It happened with Lizzo. It happened with Florence. It happened with Rage when yeah. those Rage tickets first went out. And that was pre-pandemic. So like, I feel like that is a very new uh, phenomenon, but I don't think it's a new phenomenon. I think it's a new like, strategy. Yeah, I think it's happened before. Well, Mike, you can probably speak to that from the professional side of it. I mean, it has happened before. I think where the struggle is now is people, I think, are just not sure what demand is for anything anymore. Exactly. So yeah. They're trying to err on the side of caution. But in what world does Madonna not sell out three or four shows in New York City? I well, mean, that's... a pandemic world. To I be guess. fair, yeah, you never know. And and also, I mean, Madonna is Madonna. So maybe this isn't a, a, a key example, but yeah, this, so the Fugees, right? So they did right. those reunion shows recently. And after the like, first two or three, people were like, we ain't doing this. Well, I'm not going in waiting yeah. five hours for Lauryn Hill not yeah, to show up. Fugees <laughs> are probably not a good example because Lauryn Hill had torpedoed her own reputation. It's such uh, a shame, too. To your point about Santa Gold, there's a lot of question marks there because Santa Gold could sell out a decent sized room in New York or LA yeah. or San Francisco, 10 or 12 major cities. But after that, right. getting to those secondary and tertiary markets, you don't know who's coming out to see you totally. uh, right. or don't really have a way of gauging what the marketplace is. And you're putting down a lot of potential upfront money and you also have, you have musicians to pay, you have a crew to pay, you have assistants to pay, you have, you're in charge of the whole operation. It could potentially sink you into a ton of debt. So I can see how somebody like Santa Gold, who is moderately successful, but definitely probably only had a big city audience. Otherwise it's playing like tiny clubs in, in the Midwest or God forbid the South. Um, right. You know, and then could probably tour Europe. But that's also, again, a super expensive undertaking. So it's just like you got to figure out what you're, where you're going. Well, to that's, bring. that's where you get these packages, right? Yeah. yeah. And like half of the people will come out for New Kids on the Block. The other half will come out for New Edition. Right. All right yeah. Like I went to see at Jones Beach last summer. I went to see, it was Incubus, Sublime. And I, I forget who the opener was, somewhat smaller. But it's one of those things where it's like, at first glance, it's like, oh, that makes sense. These two bands were popular around the same era. But if you think about it, during their height, those two bands would oh. not have toured together. Right. They were completely separate audiences. Yeah, like, I, think, <laughs> there's, uh, I think you can make it a really good balance. I, a few years ago, saw Dashboard Confessional and Third Eye Blind which are two bands you would never think would be on the same bill, but right. 
they filled up the spot. And you know, it was half dashboard fans, half third eye blind fans, and they stuck around. So I, I think you have to be creative at this point um, yeah. to really figure out what you're going to do in terms of your touring strategy. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned we we have tickets to go see Thrice, and they announced that tour. I was able to jump into the presale. They announced it at one venue, and I turned around. My tickets had a different venue on them in the digital ticket because they had to change it to a bigger venue and add shows. Now, they are also doing the 20th anniversary of their most popular album, which they not only remastered, they actually re-recorded. So I think a lot of old fans, Thrice has evolved over the years, and a lot of okay. the old fans are like, oh, you're doing the old stuff. <laughs> and I like, came out of the woodwork for this tour. Nostalgia sell. Sure do. But yeah, I mean, like it's hard to strategize putting together a tour at this point. Yeah, yeah. I don't envy the job of promoters and tour managers to get that stuff done, particularly. And then you add in the fact that artists are merc- mercurial and, you know... Mm-hmm you're dealing with people who are creative and whose feet aren't necessarily planted in reality all the time. It's a very (laughs) kind way of putting it. I'm trying, (laughs) you know, people who might have inflated senses of their own self-worth, people who might be dealing with addiction issues, people who, Mm. you know, are dealing with the trauma that we've we've all been dealing with over the past three and a half years. Um, Like it's just this huge ball of, stress that has to be thought about and handled so i hats off to anybody who even plans a tour at this point because it's a lot of work <laughs> yeah yeah and i actually think there's something to be said for the the ability to be booking these shows where they have three four days that they can add on right like it's got to be its own logistical nightmare like right. if you don't sell out and then you just got to pay for Florence and her whole band hang, hang out days. until they can move to the next state. Stop. Right, paying for hotel rooms for three days. Right. So, like, I think they are planning for these things to do that. They just don't open up the night until they have to. And, yeah, I think in, in smaller venues, in smaller cities, it, it must be a real nightmare, right? Because yeah. you don't sell out, then you have to keep moving. Or if you do sell out, you have to keep moving. I mean, there's always been this this game that's played where you release tickets in waves so you can say it's sold out, even though you've got these other tickets in your back pocket to sell or foolishness like Phil Collins' first farewell. Right. (laughs) When you're calling it that from the gate. Brady before Brady was Brady. Right, right. Right. Yeah, exactly. And again, that I think also speaks to artists being mercurial beings and, ah, fuck it, I hate this. I'm not going on tour again. And then three years later, it's like, oh, I got to pay a mortgage. Well, uh, yeah. So that he talks. And a lot of acts who broke up and you never thought, you thought 10, 15 years later are now like, you know, I can book a separate room and not talk to you to make this money. <laughs> Be on stage together and then go our separate ways. Yep. We all, I got to pay for this divorce, do, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. All we have to do is be on stage together and rehearse together. We don't have to do anything else together. Yeah. And I think the flip side of that is they tried to work with other people and they were like, oh, maybe it wasn't so bad. <laughs> you go well, the man. other way, try to do a new collaboration and realize what you had, maybe you could work through. Right. That happens too, I think. Well, so that leads us to talk of the super group. Because that's a relatively new phenomenon as well. And Is it's it? like, no. I mean, new in terms of like, I'd say the past 10 years, 
I mean, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, I guess. Yeah, but I mean, there's there's always been super groups. Um, those are but but who have taken off to the point where where they would overshadow the groups that the members originally came from, right? Okay. That's relatively new. An example. Who are you thinking of? Them crooked vultures. And okay, maybe they don't overshadow Foo Fighters and Queens of the Stone Age, but Audio Slave, right? Again, maybe not overshadowing Rage Against the Machine, but were became more than just the members of Rage and Soundgarden, right? They were their own thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that's an entirely new phenomenon, but what I do think happens as a result of that is that potentially like them crooked vultures and Foo Fighters could go on tour together and it just ends up being right. like Grola Palooza. <laughs> right. Yeah. Somebody's always on stage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that I think again, like to bring back the new edition comparison, it's like when you go see New Edition, you're not just seeing New Edition. You're seeing New Edition right. and you're seeing Bobby Brown and you're seeing Belle DeVoe and you're seeing Johnny Gill. Um it's almost like a package show, but not really a package show. Yeah. That's true. Like, went to see The Smile, and they didn't do any Radiohead songs, but they did do one of Tom York's solo songs. Okay. Which you didn't recognize. I was just along for the ride. <laughs> I love a live show. But the uh, the debate that kept coming up over the night was, like, is Radiohead done? Because each member of Radiohead is doing their own thing, right? And right. I don't think that that would signal anything specific except for... The Smile is touring so hard <laughs> and promoting this album in such a way. And it is so aligned with what Radiohead already does. Like, Adams for Peace is so out of left field. It's like, okay, that's not a replacement for Radiohead. That's this other thing. Right. The Smile might right. actually be the replacement for Radiohead. And it's not that I, I don't mean, think those guys get along. They've talked about you know, being on the verge of breaking up in the past. But 15 years from now, when they want another check probably worth more for them to say Radiohead is getting back together versus here's the next album, right? Right. I mean, I gotta leave the door open for, <laughs> for these things to happen again. I mean, and also don't make any final decisions because minds will change. That yeah. there, whatever's going on in the Radiohead camp, I appreciate that there's not an announcement that Radiohead has broken up after 30 years, blah, 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 blah. Right. So five years down the line, it whether it's a financial reason or whether they're just like, eh, we miss recording together. Let's make a new record. They have that pathway to do that without it being like the hoopla of reunion tour. Yeah. I find it more annoying when they say they're done. Again, Tom Brady, you say you're done and then you're back. Like LCD Sound System, they did like a worldwide we done tour. And they, I just saw them at Brooklyn Steel and for the last two years, they've done like a whole residency at Brooklyn Steel for like a month. (laughs) I mean, people spent crazy money to see them when they said they were done. And now they're just back. And that feels more like a cash grab to me than the reuniting. And it is very cynical. I mean, I'm going to take this to a pretty dark place, but like a lot of us are still reeling over the fact of like, we said we'd catch Nirvana the next time they came around. Right. Right. <laughs> and right. it's just like, all right, well, we got to do it while we can. I'm seeing Thrice for the first time after 20 years because then I'll catch them the next time. Right. 
But there's always that. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen six months from now, nine months from now, 10 years from now. So potentially anytime you see anybody could be the last time that you see that person or that band. It's kind of a chance that you have to take. I, I think that there are ways to explore that in a way that where the customer doesn't feel like they're being taken advantage of, where it's not like, oh, well, this is definitely our last tour. Like, blah, blah, exactly. blah, blah, blah. I, th- I mean, haven't there been like three or four Smashing Pumpkins farewell tours or something like that? Oh, God, so, probably. Yeah, but in that case, I think Billy Corgan is enough of an asshole that they actually think they're done with him. <laughs> right, that, that is fair. Yeah, I think the, the rest of them just need the money, honestly. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's just like, you never know. I mean, I... Moral of the story is you should always take advantage of the time to see a, a musician or a band because you literally don't know. Like, I know yeah. somebody who had bought tickets to see James Brown and he ended up passing away like five days before the show. I saw him a month before at the Hollywood Bowl. Wow. We did a show a month before he passed away. Wow. And again, wasn't expecting it to be the last time James Brown was going to play. Right. But took me 20 years to see Rage. They were touring in maybe 2000 and they were touring with the Beastie Boys and Mike D broke his clavicle in a like a BMX accident and then they canceled the whole tour and then I saw the Beastie Boys somewhere along the way and then I was like god I got to see Rage. Got to see Rage. <laughs> Made it happen. Yeah. I sure did. And then I waited another two and a half years for that show. And and People on the second half of that tour right. missed out again because Zach. Right. Right. Because Zach got hurt. Yeah. All right. Well, you got any pluggables? Me? No. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wanting to give you the opportunity in case I you did. I'm not going to plug. We did get a listener letter. Ooh. Letter. Our first one. And actually, Tamara, do you want to do the honors of I can read of it. Reading? Okay. First time caller, long time listener. I consider myself an old head, at least with hip hop, but you guys took me to school. I really enjoyed the first two episodes. I'm feeling inspired to dig into Stevie Wonder's catalog now. I was only a casual fan, but I really like how you shared some of his personal life story that I was completely unaware of. I laughed when hearing Jermaine Dupree started as a backup dancer for Houdini. My mind immediately went to Easy E's all of a sudden Dr. Dre is a G thing, but on his old cover, old album cover, he was a she thing, referring to his days on the world class wrecking crew. Would love to hear deeper dives into the Mad Villain album along with Nirvana's impact on the culture that JC referenced on episode two. And that comes from Nick Sotomayor, who is actually a, a coworker of mine. So oh, wow. thank you, Nick. <laughs> thank you, Nick. We appreciate, we appreciate that. that. Thank you for listening. What else do we got today? I, I'm good. I think that's it. We we, we did a podcast in a few different directions. <laughs> we, we, we've tan, tangentialized all over the place, but it's good. I mean, at this point, if you're listening to us and you've listened to us regularly, you know what we do. So Yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> Loved hearing Tamara's Woodstock 99 experience. Could, couldn't have been- Shouldn't have been me in retrospect. <laughs> but... <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that you made it back in one piece. Yes. yes. So was my mom. <laughs> yes. If you would like to send us any listener mail, you can email us at journeyintosound at gmail.com. That's journey, the letter N, the number two at gmail.com. Thanks right. for having me, guys. Yeah, thank, thank you for you, coming Tamara, on. Tamara, thank you for providing all of the insight that you provided and uh, mm-hmm. being a great first guest. 
Yeah, setting the tone. So, no pressure. No fresh. <laughs> I mean, we should also add, if anyone wants to be a guest on the show or if anyone has any ideas for topics, uh, just up at the same email address. Once again, that's journeyintosound at gmail.com. I know JC is social media resistant, but uh, you can... I don't like this reputation I have. It's not a reputation. So, it's like facts. So here's the thing. It's, it's, it's... I have never been against creating social media for this venture. A little defensive. I personally... <laughs> I'm only on Facebook and LinkedIn, and I don't really need to get into the rest of that. But I fully support having a Insta or TikTok or whatever the kids are doing these days for the podcast. I was here. I heard him say it. You can go right ahead and yeah. do that Insta now. I'm. I am. Twitter. Do people politically jumping from Twitter? I wouldn't. I mean, I'm I mean, not. I'm not really mess. messing with Twitter at this point. Okay. Well, whatever whatever we want to do, I mean, hey, listeners, if you would like to be part of the family and run our social media or run our TikTok, <laughs> right? Know. You are welcome to do it. Oh, TikTok. Jermaine, I think this would requ- this would requ- require our presence. <laughs> I'll show up. I'm just not going to run it. <laughs> right on. All right. Well, again, if you would like to be a guest, please let us know if you have any topics to suggest. Uh, please, please let us know. We're open to all of that. And well, I guess um, Mad Villainy is is on deck, based on our user feedback so far. Yeah, and it's really funny because I'm in the middle of reading this book, and I think the Nirvana, or just the rock music's influence, or alternative rock's music, or '90s rock's music, music's influence on Black culture, I think, mm. is a, a really interesting topic to explore. Um, yeah. So that might be something to, to bring up next. I mean, we've all got ideas. So Yeah. For Mad Villainy, we sh- they've got a 33 and a third coming out about Mad Villainy, and we should probably wait until that's released. For those of you who don't know, there's a book series called 33 and a Third. Which is um, amazing. Yeah. I think there are like almost 200 now, and each, each book takes a specific album and does a deep dive either into the history of the album or I think one of them is like a, a fictional novel based on the album. I think that's what they did for Exile in the Guyville with oh, uh, Fair? L- Liz Fair. Sorry. <laughs> you had Lil Fair on Liz your Fa- mind. Yeah, Liz exactly. Fair, you looked right at me. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> it's a really great series. There's one on Nirvana in utero. I, I think I've got maybe two dozen or so of them that I've either owned or read over, yeah, over the years. For, so, yeah. Bookshelf, and I've got like 40, 40 of them. L- looking forward to the Mad Villainy one for yes. sure. Oh, Tom Verlaine from Television died recently too we forgot to mention right jay we missed like 20 people yeah yeah i I say that because marquee moon i have the the 33 for marquee moon that i bought recently i haven't actually read yet but we missed a lot of folks (laughs) they're driving like flies Mm -hmm. it's it's crazy but all right that weird note (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) thank you for listening folks we will see you next month Cool. We out.